Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to worship. Uh, so good to be worshiping with you today. We're in the middle of a message series called Relationship Status. And it's a three-week series. Each uh, message is uh, based on the title of a TV sitcom. So last week was Modern Family. Next week is The Love Boat. And today we're talking about friends. And that friendship is maybe a little bit deeper than sitting in your favorite recliner for 14 hours eating Cheetos and, and watching sports. That's an important part of it. But it's not the whole thing. It's not the whole thing. To get us started, let's go back to a verse uh, that we just heard in our Bible reading. Uh, John chapter 15, verse 15. This is Jesus talking to his disciples. Read this out loud with me. Now you are my friends. One more time. Now you are my friends. By the time we get to this verse, it's toward the end of Jesus' three years of public ministry. It's the night he's going to be arrested. It's the day before he's going to be crucified. He's been hanging out with the disciples for three years at this point. Think of everything the disciples have seen and what they know about Jesus at this point. They've seen as Jesus has taught crowds of thousands and just amazed them, not just by what Jesus taught, but also by how he taught. He taught with power and authority, we're told. Uh, Jesus is able to kind of leave the religious leaders of his day dumbfounded. They don't know how to respond to what Jesus is teaching, what Jesus is saying. Uh, people are astounded by his uh, miracles. Even the most hard-hearted cynics are softened when they see Jesus healing people of illness and disease. And so here's this guy, this incredible guy who does you know, kind of a larger-than-life figure, and he pulls the disciples close and he says to them, now you are my friends. Now you're my friends. This theology is the study of God, right? So this phrase by Jesus is to theology what, what the Magna Carta is to government, what the Beatles are to music, what Jackie Robinson is to baseball, what Matt LeBlanc is to acting. All right, maybe that's overstepping it a little bit, but this is a, this is a game changer of a statement. Most of us, we have all kinds of images of who God is and how God relates to us. Most of us don't have this as one of our primary images, that God is my friend. God is my friend. But maybe we should. You, you read through the Bible and you actually, there's a lot of language around friendship and uh, how God's relationship with us works. So go back to the Old Testament book of Proverbs, one of the places where we find a lot of teaching and wisdom on how relationships work. Let's read this verse out loud together, Proverbs 18, 24. Again, it's on the screen. Read it out loud with me. There are friends who destroy each other, but a real friend sticks closer than a brother. A real friend sticks closer than a brother. Noah and Nash, are you taking notes? Okay. Ahav is the Hebrew word that gets translated friend. Ahav. It's a real important Old Testament word. Ahav gets used over 200 times in the Old Testament, but most of the time it's not translated friend. Most of the time it gets translated love, as in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. It's part of a prayer that the Hebrew people would pray together, kind of like we pray the Lord's Prayer on a regular basis. They would pray the Shema on a regular basis. The Hebrew word for here is Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. And that word love is ahav. Jesus picks up on the Shema when he's teaching the great commandment, the greatest commandment of all. He hearkens back to this verse, but then he adds on to it, uh, Leviticus 19, verse 18, love your neighbor as yourself. And again, the, the word ahav shows up there. So when we think about the great commandment, love God and love your neighbor, we could also say 
Friend God and friend your neighbor. Part of what Jesus is teaching when he teaches the great commandment. Friendship is at the heart of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And so that's why we're going to take a whole message today to talk about friendship. Uh, I don't, and, and let me just say this. This is not going to be kind of a typical sermon that I teach. There's going to be a lot of information today. And so you've been outside enjoying the weather all weekend and you're tired and you might fall asleep. That's fine if you fall asleep. But if you don't want to fall asleep because it's really good information you're about to hear, let's just buckle in and get ready. I don't know if you've ever noticed it. It seems like in churches there's a gender gap. A lot more women involved in church than men. In fact, in mainline Protestant denominations, Methodists, Presbyterians, Lutherans, the number is 66%. 66% of churchgoers are women. It's like a two-to-one ratio. Why is that? Why is there a gender gap in churches? All kinds of reasons for that. Here's one I'd like to touch on today. I, I don't remember a whole lot from my undergraduate study at Central College. I majored in communication. One of the things I do remember is something called the theory of proxemics. The theory of proxemics developed in the 1960s by a guy named Edward T. Hall. And what Edward T. Hall says is there's kind of four spaces that we live our life in. Four spaces, public space, social space, personal space, and intimate space. Depending on what space we are in, there are different rules for how do we relate to one another. So, for example, in public space, so think about if you go to a game at Hilton Coliseum or, or Kinnick Stadium, if your favorite team has a good play, you might find yourself jumping up and down, high-fiving and hugging someone, and you don't even know their name. But they're a Cyclone or they're a Hawkeye, so you're doing it, and it's socially acceptable. If you were to pull that kind of stunt anywhere else in public, they would call the cops on you, right? Not socially acceptable. So he says 10 feet is kind of the socially, it's not written down anywhere, at least it wasn't until he came up with this theory. Um, I was in an elevator, I was picking up the DVD for friends at the Central Library downtown. Um, I wasn't in the elevator because I'm very health conscious. I was in the staircase, I was taking the stairs. I, I entered the staircase and there was someone else in the stairs and you could immediately, there was this, make sure we're far enough away from each other, right? If you get too close, that's going to be weird or awkward or, I, you know, I've got to get protect myself. So, public space, we act one way. Social space, you ever go to a theater, a movie theater? Seats 100, 150 people, but there's only 10 or 15 people in the theater. Um, what would you do if someone walked in that you didn't know and sat down right beside you? You would think they were weird. They had no clue how social stuff works, right? Everybody knows you, can't sit, you can sit directly behind them if you want to, but you can't sit directly behind them. He says it's kind of a four-foot to ten-foot socially acceptable range. If it's a crowded theater, we don't like it, but we'll let you sit right next to us. Um, personal space. If you're at a meeting at work sitting around the conference table, or if you're at a party with friends, 18 inches to four feet kind of is the, that space that feels comfortable or okay. Remember when Seinfeld talks about close talkers? The, 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 someone you don't know overly well, but they, they get right in your face inside of 18 inches and you, you immediately back up. You feel yourself going, this is not cool. This is awkward. It's weird. Uh, then, uh, well, we talked about group launch in the announcements that in Lent, the, seat, the 40 days leading up to Easter, we're going to have this class. You can come to the church. We'll get you connected in a group and talking about life and faith and that sort of thing. That we're going to kind of be in the social, personal realm in this. You, you might be sitting at a table, but um, it's not going to be intimate space. 
Intimate space, he defines as zero to 18 inches. Zero to 18 inches, which means there's not very many people in your life where they can get that close to you and it's going to be okay. It's going to feel good. It's going to be acceptable, right? Spouse, close friend, your twin brother, they, they, they're great sermon illustrations. This is perfect. So zero to 18 inches. So think about now, why do we have the gender gap? Why do we have the gender gap in churches? Because men kind of believe this, right? I come to worship, and that's okay, but then I always hear them saying, you should join a team. You should kind of serve on a team. And, and then there's these small groups, these life groups, and peop, men, I think, in particular, think what Scott really wants, he won't ever say it, but what Scott really wants is for me to come and sit around in a circle and hold hands and sing Kumbaya and spill my guts to everyone. <laughs> Let me just be clear, that is not what I want. I don't want it for myself. I certainly don't want it for you. So... We're not, it, that would be inappropriate for churches to say, you need to know everyone in the church in, in that kind of intimate manner. The, we, again, we have this tendency of ranking things, right? And we say, well, that's got to be, intimate space has to be better than public space. No, we need all four spaces. We need healthy relationships in all four spaces. And a big part of relational challenge is kind of figuring out where are we. There's a, a guy at Oxford doing research, sociological kind of research. His name is Robin Dunbar. He comes up with something called Dunbar's number. I, I think it's, it lines up pretty similarly to proxemics theory. He says most human beings were capable of having uh, sustainable, stable relationships with about 150 people. And it's fluid. It could be 100 for some, 200 for others. But you're, you're not going to have 500. You know, your Facebook may say you've got thousands of friends, but that it's really more like 150. And then within that, there are circles of intimacy. Maybe there's 50 that you would be comfortable inviting over to your house, letting them actually see the inside of your house, having dinner with them, that sort of thing. 15, he says, is the number for sympathy friends, is what he calls it. So he's talking about who are the people that you are close enough with, you, you spend enough time with, that the death of someone in that circle would really be devastating to you. And then finally, he talks about close friends. These are the friends that you can rely on in times of trouble. You know, when, when something's an accident happens, something major, a who can you call at 2 o'clock in the morning? And he says typically that's between 3 and 5 close friends, confidants. Jesus says in, in our passage, uh, I, I no longer call you servants because a master does not confide in his servants. Now I call you friends confidence is what we're talking about over those close friends, that, that intimate kind of circle. So think about your relationships. Think about how it kind of fills in on these particular categories. What research is telling us about Americans, Americans don't have these kinds of relationships. University of Chicago did a study, uh, 1985, they asked Americans, how many close friends, how many confidants do you have? How many two o'clock in the morning friends? And the answer was three. 20 years later, they asked Americans, and the answer had shrunk down to two, and it's continuing uh, to get smaller and smaller. In fact, the number one response, they ask Americans, how many friends, how many confidence do you have? 25% of Americans, back in 2004, 25% of Americans said zero. I don't have anyone I can talk to. And adult men, adult men in particular, were just not good at this. We're not good at, at maintaining or cultivating friendships. UCLA did a study, uh, early 2000s, 
Uh, for, for about 50 years, the research on stress said the way people respond to stress is fight or flight. That's our primary strategy. So when we're stressed out, our brain starts releasing all kinds of chemicals, and the chemicals cause us to fight against whatever it is that's causing stress or run away from whatever it is that's causing stress, fight or flight. But what they discovered in the early 2000s at UCLA, all of that 50 years of research was done primarily by studying men. So they said, well, let's take a look at women specifically and see how do they respond to stress, and they found some interesting conclusions. One of the first things they discovered is one of the chemicals that gets released in our brains when we're stressed for both men and women is it's a hormone called oxytocin. Oxytocin. It's sometimes called the love hormone or the cuddle hormone. This is the hormone that our brain releases to teach us what does healthy bonding look like and feel like. And so in women, it gets released in spades during childbirth and, and breastfeeding. Uh, also in both men and women during sex. So oxytocin gets released. What they discovered was testosterone blocks oxytocin, the effects of oxytocin. Estrogen enhances the effects of oxytocin. So women, their primary response to stress, it's not fight or flight. It's what they call tend and befriend, because apparently our responses have to rhyme. So tend <laughs> and befriend. The stressful situation happens, oxytocin gets released, it causes women to want to tend to their children or get together with their girlfriends and talk about it. Talk it out. Now, again, research on friendship across gender lines is, is very clear. Friendship has these positive effects for us. Friendship, um, it lowers our risk of disease, lowers cholesterol, lowers our heart rate. Friendship does all these good things for us. A lack of friendship, it's similar to if you are a smoker or if you're significantly overweight. A lack of friendship has that kind of effect on your health. Friendship causes you to age better. Friendship fills you with joy. All kinds of these good things that health, uh, healthy friendships bring about in our life. Men, when we're stressed out, we disengage relationally in general. Women, when they're stressed out, they engage relationally. Guess who has a longer life expectancy? Women by about a decade. Now, I'm just talking in generalities. You may not fit into the generality. Um, but what I'm saying is whether you're a man or a woman, if your tendency is fight or flight, if, if relationships are a challenge for you or, or a struggle for you, and you find yourself sometimes just wanting to isolate, the good news is, the good news is change is possible. We can actually train our brains to respond differently to the situations in our life. And I think this is what Paul is talking about. The Apostle Paul, in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, he says, let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. So when you're stressed out and you're fighting or flighting or you're isolating, or you're going to the bar all by yourself or going to the fridge at 10 o'clock at night and pulling out the ice cream, train yourself to think differently. Instead of engaging in this kind of behavior, which I know is not going to be good for me in the long run, might help for a moment, what if I instead engage in relationship, teach myself to think about who can I talk to? And guys, we don't want to get together and talk. Or at least we won't tell people we want to do this very often. But do something that's going to help release testosterone. So call your buddies and say, let's go whatever. Work on the car or work on a project or do something that's going to release 
testosterone so that the oxytocin goes to work. And then you start talking while you're doing that project. But it takes intentionality. It takes intentionality. I was talking, I've talked a lot about my relationship with my friend Dan. Uh, Dan and I have been friends since uh, 2000, April of 2000. I was working at a church. Dan was one of the pastors. I was the youth guy. And we went out for coffee one day, and, and Dan said to me across the table, Scott, I, I wanted to ask you, would you be my friend? Would you be my friend? And I was like, I thought we were friends. We get together, and we watch sports. And we get together, and we go to move. We're very comfortable in that personal space, right? Dan was asking, do we want to you know, take it to the next level? You want to raise it up a notch, that sort of thing. I was at a, a pastor's conference, and the facilitator was talking about how pastors are some of the loneliest people on the planet. Isn't that interesting? And so he put us in small groups and said, talk about, in your small group, talk about your best friend and how did you become friends. And I was telling the story of Dan asking me, will you be my friend, right when the facilitator walked by. And he heard the story. He stopped, and he said, everyone, 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 you got to listen to Scott here. And he made me tell that story to the whole group of pastors. And then he said, in all the years that he's been facilitating these kinds of how to help pastors relationally, he's never heard of another grown man asking a grown man, will you be my friend? Never heard of it before. Dan was intentional about it. Talked about my college buddies quite a bit over the years. Uh, we've been friends for over 20 years now, but 10 years ago, 10 years ago, there was a defining moment in the relationship. We'd been kind of spread out. We'd all gotten married and having uh, kids and young families, and you know, distance was being created in the relationship until Flick sent us an email about 10 years ago saying, I'm lonely. I haven't been able to make good friends since college, and I wondered if maybe we could get a little more intentional about our friendship. And so we said, let's get together in the summer for an extended weekend at a lake in southern Iowa. We've been doing that for 10 years now. But we also start texting more regularly, not always about serious and important things. My kids are often asking me, what's so funny, Scott? And I'm laughing at the group of texts, and I can't tell them what I'm laughing at. But, um, <laughs> but sometimes it's, here's what we're worried about, here are prayer requests, you know, stressors in our life, that sort of thing. But it took Flick being vulnerable enough to say, um, I really need my friends. I really need my friends. Bible has a lot to say about what healthy friends look like, what they don't look like, but there's not very many examples of actual real-life human friendships in the Scripture. The, the best example is the friendship between David and Jonathan. You find it in the Old Testament book of uh, 1 Samuel. Um, king Saul is the first king of the nation of Israel, and his son is Jonathan. David ends up killing Goliath on the battlefield, and then uh, he gets to go to the palace and meet the king and meet the king's son. Now pick up the story, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 1. After David had finished talking with Saul, he met Jonathan, the king's son. There was an immediate bond between them. You ever have that experience? You meet someone, and you think about maybe your best friends. Maybe that's how it was just like an immediate click, and you've been and just like, I've known them for a week, but I feel like I've known them my whole life. You ever find yourself saying that? There was an immediate bond between them, for Jonathan loved David. From that day on, Saul kept David with him and wouldn't let him return home, and Jonathan made a solemn pact with David because he loved him as himself. And again, we have that Hebrew word ahav showing up in this verse friend or love, it can be translated. And notice there's intentionality 
with how the writer of 1 Samuel phrases this. He loved him as he loved himself. Goes back to that verse in Leviticus that Jesus uses in the great commandment, love your neighbor as you love yourself. And so this is pretty cool, right? David, the unknown, kind of the underdog story from Bethlehem, a shepherd boy. Now he's in the palace of the king. Now his best friend is the king's son. The king actually says to David, I'm going to make you commander of a large part of the army. And David goes out and he wins battle after battle after battle. He's becoming a national hero. People are writing songs about David. You would think this is great, right? But there's nothing easy about relationships. And the story's about to take a turn. Skip down to verse 8. This made Saul very angry. What is this, he said? They credit David with 10,000s and me with only thousands? Next, they'll be making him their king. So from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. Saul kept a jealous eye on David. In other words, now David is the competition. Now David's the competition. So my wife Wendy and I were at Ingham Okaboji Lutheran Bible Camp last weekend. And Okaboji is one of our uh, mission partners We've gone there several summers for family camp. Uh, it's a great place. We, we just have a great time. And they've got a booth on display in the back. If you'd like to talk to them about what is family camp, maybe that'd be good for your family. Or they have traditional kind of summer church camp as well, and uh, maybe that'd be good for some of your kids. So stop by and say hi to them. But we were at Okaboji last weekend for a marriage retreat we were kind of facilitating. And a big part of what we were talking about was how men and women in marriage struggle with the intimacy that they both want for the marriage. We used a book called How Can I Get Through to You? Terrence Reel is the author. The subtitle is Closing the Intimacy Gap Between Men and Women. Closing the Intimacy Gap. All kinds of reasons why we struggle with intimacy in marriage. One of the reasons is because we do not have the tools to build healthy intimacy. And one of the reasons we don't have the tools is because we learn early on it, we, we learn it either it's taught to us directly or indirectly. We learn that intimacy is inconvenient. Intimacy takes a whole lot of time and effort, and we wonder, is intimacy really worth it? How do we learn that? Who, who teaches us that sort of crazy thing? Our parents. And those of you who are parents, you're doing it to your kids. <laughs> oh, is, aren't you glad you came? I mean, Parents, we feel so much guilt anyway, don't we? This is not a guilt trip. This is, you know that list of things that you're creating that you're going to have to apologize to your kids for later on? Just add this to the list, right? Um, when your kids come to you, parents, and sometimes they have really good questions, important questions, do you ever find yourself responding, that's a great question, we will talk about it when you're older. Or, great question, thanks for asking that question, you should talk to your mother about that. <laughs> or... Or do you, ever, do you ever say, they come with these really good, awesome questions. How about we go and get cheese balls and Coke and we talk about it for about 90 minutes? No, we don't do that. That would be inconvenient. How about when your kids are fighting? Is your primary response when your kids are fighting or kind of losing it emotionally to say, we should probably sit down and talk about your feelings and, and why you're responding this way? Why you're treating your brother like Cain treated Abel, you know? Not good. Or as most of the time is our response, stop it, stop it right now, stop it or else. And so our kids learn, our kids learn. Here's how he talks about it. Both boys and girls 
are pushed out of their natural state of intimacy as kids. Girls, that happens a little bit later, 10 to 11 years old. In other words, as you're getting ready for middle school, I don't need a show of hands. But I don't know if I've ever heard a woman say, I'd like to go back and relive middle school. Or, or moms and dads of teenage, you know, middle school daughters were like, oh, so hard, so hard. Boys, it's three to four years old. We get pushed out of our natural state of intimacy. Now, what does that mean? I'm going to put a statement on the screen in a, in a second, but before I put this on the screen, I just want you to know, you do not have to agree with this. This isn't coming from the Bible. This is just some guy talking. <laughs> so you don't have to agree with it, but I want you to talk about it. Not now. This is public space, but go to you know, personal or uh, intimate space. Talk about it with your spouse. What do you think of that idea? Talk about it with a close friend or talk about it with family. Probably not over Thanksgiving dinner, but at some point, what do you think of this idea? Here's what Terrence Real writes in this book. Boys are not raised to be intimate. They are raised to be competitive performers. Boys are raised to be competitive performers. Now, I've actually kind of been hitting on this quite a bit the last several weeks, if you've been paying attention. We live in a very competitive part of the world, don't we? Every, for many of us, our life revolves around competition. And so when we see something like this, where this flake seems to be suggesting com competition is bad, we're, we just forget about that. But we compete at school. Uh, we compete on the athletic fields or the athletic mats, wrestling this week. Uh, we compete in show choir. We compete in all sorts. We compete in the business world. We compete in the boardroom. Our lives revolve around competition. And so we hear this and we're like, ah, I, don't, I don't think I like it. L let me see. Uh, when we talk about money in church, we're, we're always careful to say money's not the problem. Bible says the love of money. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. When we're talking about competition. I'm not saying competition is bad. All competition, inherently evil. It's not what we're saying. What, what, what he's saying is there's healthy competition and there's unhealthy competition. And I think you've seen unhealthy competition sometimes sitting in the stands at your kids' or grandkids' games. How do we know? How do we know when it's moving in that direction of being unhealthy? I actually think the relationship grid we looked at a couple of weeks ago is helpful in this. He says we kind of live our lives relationally in these four quadrants. Relationally walled off and one up, or boundaryless and one up. Relationally walled off and one down, or boundaryless and one down. One up, one down. And remember a couple of weeks ago we said you cannot love from a one up or one down position. Jesus humbles himself, becomes a servant. He becomes one of us, same as, out of love. You can't love from a one up or one. How do most of us, okay, not most of us, but in, you know, in play, evil places in the world like West Des Moines or Southeast Polk, how do they, how do they think about competition? Competition is a way for me to put myself one up by beating you, or to put you one down by beating you. Or sometimes we put ourselves, I just, I'm a loser, I can't win, I'm a loser. 25% of Americans say, I don't have a close friend, not one. It's hard to be friends with the competition. It's hard to be friends with the competition. But it's not impossible. The NBA Finals, 1988-1989, it was... Magic Johnson and the Showtime Lakers against Isaiah Thomas and the Bad Boy Pistons. 
hard-fought series. The Lakers won the first year. The Pistons won the second year. Before every game, Magic and Isaiah would kiss each other on the cheek. And I saw a video where Magic was talking to Pat Riley. His coach couldn't believe it. What are you doing? We're competitors. And so Magic fouled Isaiah really hard just to show he's still trying to win. But the point is they competed on the court, and off the court they could still be friends. It's hard to be friends with your competition, but it's not impossible. Go back to our story. David and Saul and Jonathan. Saul is all of a sudden viewing David as the competition. It blows things up relationally. The people are going to want to make him king, and, and Saul doesn't like it. But if anyone should have viewed David as the competition, it would be Jonathan, right? Son of the king, next in line to be the king. But he refuses to view David as competition. His dad, Saul, tries to get Jonathan to join him in an assassination plot. And Jonathan refuses. And scripture says it's because of his strong affection for David. He refused to view him as the competition. He continued to view him as his friend. So, I actually agree with Terrence Reel that boys are raised to be competitive performers. Uh, here's what I wonder, though, is how does this competition thing, I, I think it impacts women in negative ways as well. I wonder if sometimes a woman sees her friend starting a new friendship, spending time with another woman, and all of a sudden jealousy, and all of a sudden that other woman's the competition. Or I wonder if sometimes moms compete. Who's the most caring mother? Who's the most creative? Did you see my Valentine's box <laughs> that I sent with my kids because I love them so much? Or, or, or who's the most loving? I can't believe you would let your kid eat that. I would never let. It's so easy to slip into the one up, one down, and it's so difficult to stay in that place of same as. But Paul says, let God change you into a new person, transform you by changing the way you think. What if we learn to stop thinking about everyone else as the competition and instead they're friends? Jesus says to his disciples, gets us kind of back to where we started. Now I call you friends. He didn't call them friends before. Now, remember how competitive the disciples were? Who's the greatest? Who gets to sit by Jesus when he enters into his kingdom? Jesus says, no, 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 no. We're, we're friends. We're same as. And then they attacked the competition, which was the evil one. But with other human beings, it was always same as. I think part of what that teaches, again, the um, the science on this is clear. Friendship makes life better. Friendships makes life longer. Jesus says, I call you friends. He wants to make your life better, wants to make your life longer. And a big part of what we need, this, this change of thinking, is changing the way we think about God. And Jesus does that for us over and over. He gives us a new way to think about God. So we're going to stop there for the day. Let's stand together and uh, hopefully giving you a lot to chew on and think about. I want to pray for you and then we'll sing our closing song. Lord, uh, thank you for the model, the example of Jesus and uh, the way he related so perfectly at all times. Man, if I could have any superpower that Jesus had, it, it would be that. He was perfect relationally. Now the rest of us, we mess up all the time. And I pray that you would show us the ways in which maybe we are, I don't know, 
We're, we're being inappropriate depending on what space we are in. Or, or, or maybe we continue to do this one-up, one-down kind of thing, uh, viewing people as competition in, in unhealthy kinds of ways. We need your help. And so we're grateful that you say to us, you, you want to be our friend. And we're grateful, Lord, that you say to us, greater love has no one than this, to lay down their life for their friends. You did that for us. I pray, Lord, that you would give us the faith to follow you, to follow you to that place where more and more all the time we're learning to lay down our lives for our friends out of love. In Jesus' name, amen.